Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Sonic Central, the podcast for Freemasons by Freemasons. Now, here are your hosts, Greg Stewart and Gene Kennedy. This is Greg. Hey, it's Dean Kennedy calling here, and uh, we're on the podcast uh, Masonic Central. Greg, are you with us? I sure am. How you doing, Dean? Not too bad. <laughs> excellent, excellent. A little bit of a, a <clears throat> technological glitch. So you got to tell me if, if my signal doesn't come in so well, it might be my phone, and I'll be trying again with uh, my headset momentarily. So I, I just heard the intro music there. Welcome to the podcast for Freemasons by Freemasons. Today's December 13th, 2009. And uh, I think we've got a little bit of a show going on tonight, huh? Yes, indeed. Yes, we as, do. As we, as we get everything figured out here. Um, any any luck yet? Have we been able to connect with Mark? I'm right here. Sure have. Hey, Mark. How you doing? I'm just terrific, thanks. Excellent, excellent. I'm, I'm glad you were able to join us on the program tonight. So uh, we're, we're going to do something interesting. We're, we're going to move the hands of time back a little bit. And and get back into the lost symbol, which came out a couple of months ago, and and for for all intents and purposes, it seems like it's it's evaporated off the uh, uh, the talk tracks. But I think we're going to try to delve a little bit back into it now that we're uh, coming up to the holidays, so some folks might be asking for it to be put under the Christmas tree, and uh, hopefully uh, up some interest in it. I and think. Oh, we have more than that planned. Absolutely, absolutely. And I was about to mention, I think, and Mark, you've got a, a book coming out on the subject. I sure do. Something in the works there. So, I think, Dean, do we have a little bit of news from Tim? Do we want to run into the news, and then we'll we'll just run right into the show? Let's let's go to the news, then we'll come back, and we'll we'll start talking to Mark a little bit, okay? Excellent. Take it away, Tim. Thanks, Greg and Dean. This is Tim Bryce with Masonic News for the week of December 13, 2009. In the news, the Colleen Daily Herald of Colleen, Texas, reports, Freemasons have a rich history that goes back centuries. The same goes for the Mount Hiram Lodge in Copperus Cove. In the same year that the city is celebrating its 130th birthday, Mount Hiram Lodge number 595 celebrated its 125th year in Copperus Cove, Texas. The lodge was chartered December 12, 1884. Many of the founders of Copperus Cove were masons at the lodge, according to the lodge's written history. Saturday, members of the lodge and the community celebrated the lodge's history in the city. The town of Copperus Cove was founded in 1879. The lodge was founded just five years later. The Garner Citizen of North Carolina reports Jimmy Stevens was appointed as the North Carolina Grand Lodge Judge Advocate. The ceremony in which he was appointed was held in New Bern, North Carolina, Saturday, November 21st. In his role as Judge Advocate, Stevens will receive and process matters of contention within the Masonic Order, conduct Masonic trials, and dispose of matters regarding Masonic jurisprudence in North Carolina. His term will last two years. Stevens presently serves as a captain with the Wake County Sheriff's Office in charge of internal affairs and special investigations. The Utica Observer-Dispatch of New York reports, The Wonderland of Lights, a fundraiser for the Resource Center for Independent Living, is again illuminating the grounds of the Masonic Care Community at 2150 Bleecker Street. The popular family event is a drive through the Masonic campus, which is lit with displays sponsored by various area companies and individuals. 
In addition to new light displays, this year also features a 3D experience. The Wonderland of Lights will be open from 5.30 to 9 p.m. daily through January 1st. The event will be closed on Christmas Eve, December 24th. Tickets are $8 per car. Discount tickets are available at Price Chopper Supermarkets. For directions or more information, visit their webpage at wonderlandoflights.org. Again, that's wonderlandoflights.org. The McCook Daily Gazette of Nebraska reports Masonic Lodge number 135 rededicated its cornerstone yesterday, December 12th, on the third floor of the Temple Building at 322 Norris in McCook, Nebraska. The public was invited. Last year, the Lodge celebrated the 100th anniversary of the original laying of the cornerstone by opening the copper box encased in it and displaying the memorabilia placed in it 100 years ago. Updated memorabilia has been placed in the cornerstone time capsule to be opened at some future ceremony. And finally, RIA Novosti of Russia reports this past Thursday, December 10th, the Russian translation of The Lost Symbol, Dan Brown's latest novel, hit the shelves in bookstores around the country, according to Russian publisher AST. Released on September 15th, The Lost Symbol is the third Brown novel to involve the character of Harvard University symbologist Robert Langdon and focuses on Freemasonry. The book had a first printing of 6.5 million and sold 1 million in hardcover and ebook versions on its first day in the United States, the UK, and Canada, making it the fastest selling adult novel in history. Brothers, if you have any Masonic news we can use, please do not hesitate to email it to me at timb001 at phmainstreet.com. Again, that's timb001 at phmainstreet.com. And now back to Greg and Dean. Thank you, Tim. Thank you very much. How appropriate that news there, huh, Dean? The yeah. quick hit of the lost symbol. The quick hit of the lost symbol, and here we are. <laughs> and I can tell you, when he did the news, he didn't know what we were talking about. So, uh, nope. <laughs> so um, it, you know, I, I I mentioned it just before the news, and, and just to to rehit it again, uh, the new book that's coming out, and, and we don't have a date on it yet, Mark. So we're going to corner you to a date. But uh, the the forthcoming book from Brother Mark is Discovering the Lost Symbol. So how appropriate that we talk about it in the news, and, and here we are. Um, how are you doing, Mark? I'm doing just terrific. The, Excellent. Uh, the book is Excellent. titled uh, Discovering the Lost Symbol, Freemasons, Magic, Mystery Religions, Noetic Science, and the Idea that We Can Become Gods. And wow, that, that sounds like amazing. It. Yeah, I like it already, just for the title. <laughs> that's good news. Now, um, as far as everyone wants to be a god, don't they? Pardon? Doesn't everyone want to be a god? Uh, you know, I being uh, being someone who likes to deal with empirical numbers in his re- the research side of his career, I haven't done the survey on that. But uh, you know, that's uh, I, I get the impression that there are some who do and some who don't. I just wanted well, to I, used, I had a few bosses going back that always thought they were God. Ah, uh, well, yeah, that's <laughs> that's. Uh, but that's the dark God, you know. That's like the Malach. So, Malach. Yeah. There you when, go. When when we first had our discussion, you told me who would find this book really interesting. What was his name? The fella um, that thinks we're a reptilian. Uh, what's his name? Oh Lord, David Ake. 
And if oh, yes. Any, he want, he's going to get a copy for sure. Oh, I would deliver it myself, except my when I shift shapes. You know, I, I it's not. I don't always shift to a shape that has a hand. <laughs> if there are any David Akins tuned in, let me tell you, get help now. Now is the time. I mean, this guy <laughs> actually. In fact, I would love to do a show on David Ake uh, someday if you guys, uh, you know, need some someone to fill in. Because this guy really believes that Freemasons are either themselves or under the control of shape-shifting reptilian aliens from space who drink human yeah. blood. Um, in, in the Mormon temple in Salt Lake City yet. So uh, we're, we're hitting all bases tonight. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. And, 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 of course, we're not, at least in, in, in the outwards, but you guys all know, right? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I, you know, I, I've I've heard uh, David Ake, and I've always thought of it as Ike, but I've always read that he's tied to a lot of these different conspiracies, and the Freemasons are, are just one more brick in the wall for him in the sense true. of this global no, I, conspiracy. I have two linear feet of his books on my my shelf over here, and yes, Freemasons are one brick in the wall, but we are we are an important, or actually, where a better way to put it would be, we're one side of the pyramid, but um, but we are an important side. <laughs> So uh, along with the Illuminati, so and uh, you know the the Bilderbergers and everybody else, I don't know, you know. But again, that's that's a whole nother show, and a whole nother. Yeah. Well, I could I could therefore become a technical expert, a uh, technical consultant for the V when they do their next series season. You know, I I'm a touch older than you guys. I saw the series V in its original <laughs> incarnation. So did I. I remember it too. <laughs> really, you must have been like a toddler, yeah. but, uh, but this is a, uh, you know, this uh, one gets the impression that someone I won't mention names was dropping some serious acid and watching television, which is always a dangerous thing to do, I would think, uh, especially if you're going to watch shows about shape shifting aliens. So, oh well. You asked about a date. For yeah. the book. I don't have a date for the book because the proposal for the book is currently under consideration. Uh, I'm told that it'll move, the guesses are that it'll move quickly into print, but I don't have a date. When I have a date, you'll know. But let's pull one thing out right now that Greg is not aware of. You just published a book. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. I did. Got <laughs> um, one on you, Greg. I published a separate book. Um, I, it, this was a lot of fun to do, Cracking Codes and Cryptograms for Dummies, which you wouldn't necessarily... That's right. We have another author for dummies now. There you Chris go. Chris does not have the monopoly on the dummies books anymore. Actually, Chris, Chris, Christopher Hodath, God bless him, was the fellow who set me up for this. He was simply too busy. There He'd you actually go. been asked to work on this. But Chris is a busy, busy bee and wasn't able to do this. They wanted someone with a Masonic background... And uh, they got that in me. What I was able to do for them is uh, what I what I wound up doing. Uh, it, you know, the book started off in one direction and ended up in another. Um, I wrote three conspiracy narratives, really basically short stories featuring conspiracies and Freemasons in one way or another. And don't worry, we're the good guys. And these stories were encrypted by Australian master puzzle maker Denise Sutherland. I also gave some advice on Masonic ciphers, which were incorporated into the book as well. 
I wrote material at the beginning about the history of cryptography and material at the end explaining what was real history and what was invention in the three stories. And the stories tell about a single conspiracy stretching from the days of the American Revolution through the days following the Civil War into our own day. George Washington, Benedict Arnold, Albert Pike in the Scottish Rite, and some contemporary Masonic master cryptographers make appearances in the story. So all you guys at the House of the Temple, buy the book and find out who, which two of you are hidden there in an encrypted name. So, so you just sold how many copies uh, by saying that? That's at least I'm, two thousand. I'm, I'm hoping 35. You know, this book just came out. It, it does try to create a Dan Brownian milieu, cracking codes and cryptograms for dummies. Go for it, guys. We we actually have it, indeed. Not to, not to disrupt your trump card, but I did mention it in our post on Freemason information. It's at the very bottom as to the oh. works that are out now. So oh, I didn't get that uh, far, I guess, there. Greg. <laughs> Not enough pictures for you. I don't drink yeah. my own lemonade, boys. My own Kool-Aid. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll post it up on our chat for those that are in the chat. They'll be able to see it too and, and uh, be able to check it out over at Amazon. So, so you've been a busy man. I, I know we've we've tried to to talk a while back and, and weren't able to connect. And um, and ideas flying left, right, and sideways, and then all of a sudden I noticed, and I mentioned to Dean that that you had had gone silent. Well, that, that yeah. I kind of scratched my head, wondering what happened to Brother Mark. Well, here's here's what's happened. Um, really, as an outgrowth from my blogging about Dan Brown, um, a lot of things have happened. I've appeared on the Discovery Channel documentary, Hunting the Lost Symbol. Um, and during this two-hour presentation, I had more—I had more airtime than most of the other experts on the show. Um, I was interviewed extensively for the forthcoming U.S. News and World Report Collector's Edition on Dan Brown's The Lost Symbol. That'll be out in January. Um, this is a lovely thing. I wrote two chapters, one of them on Freemasonry, for a forthcoming book called Secrets of the Lost Symbol. The Unauthorized Guide to the Da Vinci Code sequel, and that's co-edited by Dan Burstein and Arne de Kaiser. Uh, that'll be out in hardcover, I'm thinking, either this Tuesday or next. Um, there are actually two books called Secrets of the Lost Symbol. You'll want to look for Dan Burstein's name. He's the guy who co-edited with Arne de Kaiser the phenomenally successful, you know, multi-million copies selling Secrets of the Code, about the Da Vinci Code and Secrets of Angels and Demons a couple of years ago. Um, and as I mentioned before, I had Cracking Codes and Cryptograms, which was terrific, but we had to write the entire book in a matter of weeks. Uh, we're talking, you know, 16, 20-hour days for weeks at a time. Um, and then I, I, I ran into an issue, and, and that's why I've, as you say, gone silent. I haven't been on email, haven't been on blogs, haven't been on Facebook, everybody. Sorry about this. But it, here's what happened. When Dan Brown's book came out on September 15th, it completely obsoleted everything that I had written in my own book proposal. So I've had to rewrite a 200-page proposal um, covering both the technical parts of a book proposal and two long sample chapters on the concept of apotheosis and my explanation for why it is that Dan Brown is so insanely popular. 
Um, as of today, he's 11 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list in the third position for hardcover fiction. So I expect Christmas will bump that up a bit. Um, it is it's, so it's been it's been crazy. I mean, my my gosh, writing having this book completely obsolete everything that I had written was uh, I just didn't see that coming. But it's all for the better. I mean, it was uh, you know he's written a much deeper book than he's written before. Um, he's written a much more he's written a, a, really a novel of ideas that is masquerading as a thriller. And uh, the ideas that he's introducing are fascinating. The idea, and the stakes are much larger than anything he's ever played for before. Apotheosis, the journey to godhood, with four different pathways to that. Uh, the ancient mystery religions, ritual magic and alchemy, Freemasonry, and noetic science. Uh, somebody show me something that has higher stakes than godhood, and I'll be delighted to entertain the idea that they're playing for bigger stakes. But um, I, it, it re it's required my full attention once I put cracking codes and cryptograms to bed to, to try to get this proposal out. Because, you know, again, the window for this book is, is not, it's not infinite. It has to get out there pretty quickly. Uh, I do have... Yeah, the marketing. So, so you are going to get it picked up, though, eh? Like, it looks uh, like it. Gonna... I have uh, the eight, I have a couple of agents looking at the proposal, and uh, or have expressed interest in the proposal. They haven't all gotten emails out yet, um, and they sound very enthusiastic about it. So I'm hoping mm -hmm. that this will get picked up by a major publisher. That's my Christmas present, guys. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> in my so style. anyone out there can get you. You know, just like that other guy writing that Lost Symbol book, that Dan, Dan Brun, Bernstein, would you say? Dan, if Dan you Bernstein. can get another guy on your book that's like Dan B or uh, like, you know, and they look it up, you know, or J.R. Tolkienstein maybe might work. Yeah. Uh, there you go. You know. Actually, <laughs> I'm, I'm Dan <laughs> this is a, a message of encouragement to all you would-be writers out there. Dan Burstein's first gigantic, insanely popular book on Dan Brown, Secrets of the Code, was basically sold over a Christmas party, um, you know, just right there. <laughs> so it was a... Uh, oh, it, really? It, 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 the idea was... It, it, it was an idea whose time was recognized, had, had arrived, the very day that it arrived. And so you know, he, he did this mad... Uh, pulling together of experts. Uh, now, of course, he has the process down, so it's not quite so maddening. But uh, he does a great job, and I, I look forward to seeing uh, to seeing my chapters in that book. Again, it's either this week or next. I get conflicting um, answers about when these books are out. So he's going to shorten his last name to B, though. Eh? So he looks like Dan B. Is that going to be? Is that yeah, what well, he'll do? definitely right. not Dan B. Uh, it'll be Dan Burton. I don't want. I don't want to give the impression. I, I would love to have a, a recommendation. I actually have. I have a, a a cover flap blurb from Dan Burstein that's quite complimentary. I'd love to get one from Dan Brown. So if you're listening, Mr. Brown, uh, I'd be delighted. You know, you can get in touch with me through my Google profile page. So, if you're uh, listening, Dan Brown, give us a call too. <laughs> We'd love to have you on the show. That's right. Call in. Call I, in I have to Dan say, I've, I've, I've to hear from his people about having him on the show. So I, I, I highly doubt he's listening. But if he is, you're right. Give us a call. So, right? so just to come back to this, what, why do you think it is that that Brown is is 
uh, so popular, if popular is even the right word. Why, why do you think that, that he's perceived as being this sort of um, oracle, if you will, to, well, to the Eastern mystery traditions? That's a fascinating question. I have a whole chapter on this. I think there are two sides <laughs> to this question. First, his readers bring something to the table, not necessarily good things. And second, Dan Brown brings something as well. You know, in terms of his readers, I hate to say it, but the plain fact of the matter is that the typical readers have a stunning ignorance about religion. And I mean their own religions. Half of American adults cannot name a single one of the four Gospels in the New Testament. Most Americans can't name the first book of the Bible. Heck, 10% of Americans think Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. And I'm not kidding. <laughs> On top of that, people have less and less experience with organized religion. 60% of Americans don't attend worship services. Uh, and, of course, in Europe, that number is far higher. Less than 15% of the U.K. attends weekly worship. Less than 10% do in France or Germany. You talk about people um, in the uh, you know a younger age range. It's even a much smaller number than that. But at the same time, people have a great hunger to know something about spirituality. In any given week, 10% or more of the books on the New York Times bestseller list have something to do with religion or spirituality. And of those books that have been on their bestseller list for over a year, over a quarter of those books have something to do with religion or spirituality. People are hungry to know about the topic. This is why M. Scott Peck's book, The Road Less Travel, sold 10 million copies back in the 80s. That's why books by Wayne Dyer, Deepak Chopra, Rick Warren, very different authors, that's why their books are basically guaranteed to be bestsellers. So there's a great ignorance at the same time that there's a great hunger among the readers about religion and spirituality. And into that spotlight steps Dan Brown. And what does he write about? explosive issues involving religion and spirituality. That's what the nature of Jesus, the divine feminine, religious tolerance, the relationship of science and religion. Oh, yeah, those are, there are very good reasons why Dan Brown is almost incredibly popular. Now, there are Masonic implications here. First, if one, I know there are people who disagree with me. There are friends who disagree with me on this. But if one feels at all that Masons have an obligation to bring their light out from under a bushel basket and do something in the 21st century for society, not just back in 1776, this is the time to roll out the open houses. Beyond that, as individuals, we should set a better example about knowing about our own religions, whatever those be, even if they're totally individual, as well as the religions of other people. We talk a good talk in this regard. We should walk a good walk as well. I, I tend to agree. I think that was finishing the book itself and, and sort of reflecting on, on the, the contents of it, which we'll definitely get into as, as we talk about the mm -hmm. subject more. Um, but but reading the, the contents of the book and having had, had own past endeavors through the different topics of it, mm -hmm. um, I, I, I almost want to think that this book would lose most Masons in the sense of, of what its subtext was. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, sure, it was a, a mystery thriller, but but some of the things that that transpired in the book, by in the sense of dialogue about what some of the philosophies were. Oh yeah, 
I, I, I mean, I've, I've had notes from folks asking, you know, what were the books that they mentioned in, in, in The Lost Symbol? I, I've never heard of them before and just sort of cringe. It's like, you know, because it, it, I, I mean, maybe it's just my own false assumption that, that these would have been picked up already. I, I'm sure Dean, I mean, we've talked about it before, but I, I doubt that Dean knows much about the Kabbalion, which was, I mean, mentioned briefly in the book, but, well, you know, that's, still with some... That's why my book, that's one of the reasons that I'm writing this book, is that, you know, he, in passing, will touch on something like the Kabbalion. In passing, he'll make references to alchemy, to hermetic magic, but the the average reader looks at it and says, how the heck would I find out anything about that? And that's that's why I'm writing my book. Um, even I'll, I'll give you one thing he throws. He does a wonderful, he throws away a lot of stuff here. I'll, I'll give you one example of something he throws away. You know, he, he spends a piece of an early chapter going through the tattoos on the body of the villain. You know, he has head-to-toe tattoos except for one little spot at the top of his head. What he doesn't tell you at all is that the tattoos that he describes illustrate the journey of the villain through the many degrees of Freemasonry in his search for the lost word. And that's another thing that Dan Brown didn't really go into detail on. What's the big whoop about the lost word? And of course, the lost word is one of the linchpins of Masonic ritual across its many rites and, uh, and degrees. And that's something, without giving away things that are confidential in the ritual, that's something that I want to, to talk about. I actually have an artist I'm trying to persuade to do a good job on, or to do, to do up a painting. I know that this artist will do a good job on the tattoos uh, that we can then spend some time on discussing how he starts off with the supposed roots of Freemasonry and Hermetic Magic, goes through the Blue Lodge, goes through the Royal Arch, goes through the Scottish Rite, and then, boom, uh, the lost word, the search for the... And that's, he just throws that away. And it, it's, so which, which side is the York right getting? Are they getting the left or the right side? Are they going uh, the back or the front? Neither, neither, neither. It's the, uh, the York right is symbolized by the arch that he has around his nasty bits. And uh, that is a... Um, that, of course, is a, an interesting thing for Malak because, of course, he's self-castrated. Uh, yikes! But the, uh, <laughs> the the notion of the royal arch and what that represents within the York Rite, you know, and how foundational that is, and how that rep I I actually just uh, participated in the uh, the degree of the York Rite this past week, and uh, you know, shout out to uh, my all my homies at Ancient Chapter <laughs> Number One Royal Arch Masons <laughs> in New York, uh, who did really fabulous work, but. Um, that you know the idea about how that completes the uh, the blue lodge degrees the journey of the master mason and in a way it does it really does uh, although there is again you know masonry is a is a, a journey of many rites and that's that there's just nothing said about that in the uh, in the book which is really unfortunate not my now opinion. now you have. I, just to jump in and interrupt there for a moment, now you have to wonder though was was how extensive do you think that Brown really understood what he was constructing there? I mean, not to say that it was complete, you know, just a happy accident that he did it that way, 
But but do you think that there was a subtext to it in, in his head maybe or in his notes that, that had these things sort of outlined and, and put together? I absolutely together? think so. I absolutely think so. One other thing that I've been doing over the last couple of months, I've been interviewed a lot. Uh, I've been, um, you know, I have in, interviews with, the extensive interviews with me done by the Religion News Service, the New York Post, two articles in the Salt Lake Tribune, an article in Panorama, which is all in Italian. You know, I'm hoping they're not saying nasty things about me. But um, and one of, one of the the reporters mentions to me that she had come upon information suggesting that he had so much material that it took up the equivalent of you know file file case. You know, whole not file. You know, um, what am I? I? I'm looking at my own. You know, file drawers several of them, like eight of them, just full of material, background stuff. I think he does have that. I think he ran into a problem of cutting down. Um, you know, his his general pattern, and again, a lot of this book is about him trying to break patterns. You know, in The Da Vinci Code, in Angels and Demons, he goes on for pages and pages of backstory. I happen to love backstory. Um, and, of course, a lot of his backstory is made-up history, so I get to read and be delighted and irritated at the same time. But, um, you know, with he doesn't do as much backstory in the lost symbol at all. In fact, there are some places where it's even suspicious and raises concerns for me that he has left out backstory, but we'll get into that later. I think he has an awful lot of stuff that he could have, he could have written a, a novel four times this size just putting in the kind of backstory he put in for the Da Vinci Code. Absolutely, absolutely. My my own take to it is, is in the back of my head, I think that he had written this book and then had to change it as time went on. I'm sure. And and this was just the pragmatic side of me because you know with 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 the the release of the Da Vinci Code and all the books that that came out. Um, about what his next book was going to be. It was almost as if every author in the world out there had written whatever book he was going to write and, and really had to come up with that. You're, yeah. you're and, and, and so I think in, in having to reconstruct it, he did. And, and we have what we have now as, as the finished work. And, and I think it's it sort of smells like that composite of, of all these different thoughts and ideas brought together into one work with all these bits and pieces that he'd pulled together for perhaps these other works. And, and again, this was just me imagining his process of putting it together. Um, because I think in, in a lot of respects, the book does lay out well. Most of the folks that I've talked to and, and we've talked about it um, have all agreed that, it, that it's a very good story, but it just doesn't have the oomph that it could have had, and it has the, the taste of it having been rewritten. That it was you know, redone. I'll, I'll go with you. I'll go with you most of the way. I've I've uh, got a little cottage industry actually here, collecting recent books that I think were other authors trying to write Dan Brown's novel. And uh, over the last few years, I won't mention them because I don't really want to get sued, but um, not that badly anyway. So you know that that's happened, and I think that that and a couple of movies that have come out. Uh, starring Nicolas Cage, have sent him back to the drawing board a couple of times. I do think the book itself hangs together a bit better. Again, I do think this is a novel of ideas masquerading as a thriller. The book is about the theme of human transformation to godhood, and he explores, he touches on different avenues. 
what I think he did. I don't know that he planned on doing those in other works. Maybe that could be true. Again, he sees a dozen novels for Robert Langdon, but I and he still can have those dozen novels. But um, well, he sell any? He got really. He really got slammed on this one, though. Well, tell me, what you know, do you think it was because they had to water it down? Like you say, it's missing a lot of backstory. Do you think that's what killed the novel? I don't do you think, think that's why people. You know, anything that's at the third position on the New York Times bestseller hardcover fiction list and has been on that list for eleven weeks is not is not killed. Uh, what I I really think it's actually being quite successful. The I uh, let, let's put it this way. I would be willing to sell a relative or two into um you know some some kind of salt mine to have if this is failure I'd love to have this believe me I um, I'll agree with you there failure in terms of Dan Brown is at a higher stake than than most other authors Yeah I but of all the books I think this is the one that's done the least and it's and it's it is getting hit at least from my research by the by the critics is saying this is his weakest of the last, you know, compared to like Angels and Demons and Divinity. About that, though, I must say, what in in the reviews that I've read, the ones there have been some that have been wonderfully laudatory for all the right reasons, some for not all the right reasons. The ones that have been negative, I and this is again, I won't mention their names because I don't want to be sued. I don't think they got what he was saying. I don't know whether it's because they're not in, they don't have enough of a background of knowledge in the esoteric to understand it or to detect it. I think um, I, I think a number of people read what I from what I'm reading from the, the negative reviews, um, the they did not get what the novel was about, so they didn't detect any of that. They didn't detect the important themes. They uh, they they learned the word apotheosis, but they didn't see how the novel ties all into that. They got that it was about Freemasonry. I mean, you'd really have to be stupid to not realize that, right? But they didn't see how Freemasonry is itself being portrayed as a pathway to human transformation. They just didn't get it. Um, I I would say, I would argue though, Mark, that they didn't get it because they don't have the background to really sort of understand that. And that, that, you know, that well Mason's and, and that's the author's job, is it not? The it's author's job is. is to bring the reader to that state of enlightenment for that particular book. No, that's that's certainly true. You know, and the, um, you know, I'm reminded of an opera that I attended many years ago, that was just horrible. It was just miserable. But but the way I, I justified the experience was that if I don't have some, if I don't try some things that fail. I I'm not trying hard enough, and I think that to some in in one way, although I don't think he's failed, I think Dan Brown tried to do some different things here, tried to have a to go to a different level of integration of themes, uh, dealing with even dealing with Freemasons is a daring step, um, and so he's experimenting with some things that are working for some people and not for others. I mean, even talking about Freemasonry, look at the groups that he's put into his books before. They were either totally made up, like the Priory of Sion, which was a you know a, a, a scandalous hoax run from the 1950s, or they were teeny weeny little groups like Opus Dei. You could fit all of Opus Dei in two Yankee stadiums, their entire worldwide men- membership, okay, um, and still have room for a Yankees game. 
and the uh, you know it, it, now with with the Freemasons, he brought in a group where there are millions of living members in real life. You know that for him is a, I mean that that's risky. Okay, that's a risky thing for him. And uh, you know he he caught a firestorm of criticism for speculating about the nature of Jesus as a mortal man who could have married, could have had children. I mean, there are there are people I really think who would have tied him to the rack to make him recant his heresy. What does he do? He encodes the message. He, he bases this book on an idea so explosive that in another time and place he would have been burnt at the stake, and he encodes the message on the cover that says, all great ideas start as blasphemies. Oh, that's what that was. Yeah. Great. You know, I don't need to buy your book to learn how to decode it. Yeah, yeah, that's what that's what the back one. That's what what one of the ones on the back is. So he, the guy's trying. The guy's trying, and I I, I get the impression. I don't know. I I, I mean, that's what he's got written in the Masonic cipher in in his version of it on the back. It's not the Masonic cipher in the book. It's a different. You have to mirror reverse the panel. For, for those that missed it again, Mark, what was it? I'm going to write this all down. great ideas, all GREAT, all great ideas, it's either ideas or notions, start as blasphemies. Mm-hmm. We should have put a spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> well, pick the, pick the one up and you I can know everyone's going to go and. I know everyone was going to go and try to decode that. Jeez. That's it. Well, you know, you're going to not. You're going to have to use a version of the Freemason cipher that's where it's mirror reversed here and there, a um, couple of times maybe. So, but go for it, guys. Now, oh, and you read it Mark, reads I... from down to up. Incidentally, that's a sticky thing. It reads from down to up. Ah. Yeah, sneaky little. <laughs> so it really makes you work for it. <laughs> yes, I have it to tell you. It, in 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 my review to the book and and having read it, um, I really personally found the book having levels upon levels of meaning. You know, the the stories sort of having these concentric spirals that you could mm-hmm. sort of run it through from from the from the first hand tangible all the way up to the to the allegorical or symbolic reading of it. Absolutely, and, and I. I want to say that I, I took it for, for the way that you described it and, and even further took it to some of what they talked about. And I'm, I'm trying to scroll through to find my post on it from way back um, to, to make sure I get the references right. But, but what I found it was really a, a present tense and, and dramatic thriller retelling of the story of Abraham on the mountain oh, and, yeah. and the sacrifice of his own son. I mean, that was, that was really, you know, the – the period of change, and especially as you start looking into some of the more metaphorical meanings of that, was was at that period of time that Abraham was tasked to do that. Mm-hmm. It was a period of time where where faith and religion became about um, believing strictly in, in what this idea of deity above gave down. So so as the commandments and later the Bible and so on. So so even taking us into maybe even that astrological age and bringing us, you know, to this age of Aquarius now where it's shifted and it's no longer about believing in an unseen God, but it's about believing in a in a seen God and in, in a personal incarnation. Oh, um, and I'll that was my takeaway to it. I'll see you and I'll raise you here. A lot of this is about looking at the divine potential within the human individual 
which Absolutely. is a yep. that some religions embrace and others would burn you at the stake for. So, uh, you know, it really is a blasphemy to certain groups. So, yes. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 I've had a lot of people that, that sort of you know scratch their head at that. And, yeah, I don't know if I follow that, and and I'm wondering if if you know if in the larger audience, if if you found folks that you've talked to about these ideas, if they've had the same sort of conclusions. Well, they, do they do they see what you're seeing, or or again, is it because we're sort of standing on this side of the fence, uh-huh. looking out? You know what I mean, okay. rather than okay. trying well, to look well, and figure it out. You know, there well two things about that. One very brief. The the Abrahamic motif, everybody agrees, is there. You know, he talks about the knife, the akeda. He taught, and it, it's so, it's it's just marvelous. Okay, how he does that. You haven't seen that in literature in a number of years. Uh, if if they if they write this out of the script, we should protest. But as far as the the notion of you know looking at a whole different notion of religion and and the idea of the divine, some people are seeing it, some are not. You know, I'll go. You know, we're we're entering an interesting place in the discussion now. You know, for those of you who aren't Masons listening in, usually I mean, the the practice in in Masonry is that we don't discuss in the Blue Lodge itself. Our individual, either our politics or our or our, um, our specific the specifics of our religion doctrinally, we just don't do that. Um, which is one of the reasons why the lodge is a safe place for men of different backgrounds. On the show, we're not bound in the same way. And to answer the question honestly, uh, I will say that a number of the people who detect the you know personal godhood thing um it leaped leapt out at me and it leapt out to a number of other people who also happen to be with me latter day saints okay because that's part of latter day saint doctrine um and there are people i've speculated with about where the heck did dan brown get this and i've learned an awful lot and about the background to the notion of apotheosis and the idea that in fact this is an ancient christian doctrine which which most people are unaware of um you will find hints of this here and there in the bible you know the idea that men and women are somehow made in the image and likeness of god in the psalms there's a passage that goes i which means god have said ye are gods and this is a passage that in the New Testament Jesus relies on to make a point. And there's all kinds of imagery that you don't hear a lot about that really speaks to the idea of uh, deification. You know, the New Testament repeatedly brings up the image of the crown and the throne as the reward of the faithful. In the years after the close of the New Testament, you know, the second century, the third century, there are a number of early Christian leaders who make statements suggesting that the doctrine that the faithful will be deified was widespread, wasn't even controversial. You find these kinds of statements made by Irenaeus. My favorite is made by Clement of Alexandria, who stated that the word of God, and he means Christ, became man that you may learn from a man how man may become God. Uh, One of the things I, I say in my book is that this is probably a previously undetected lost saying of Jesus himself. 
that's that would appear to be dictated by the logic of the grammar and the the whole text in context. Even if I'm wrong on that, though, that's a heck of a statement for Clement of Alexandria to be saying. There is a very large Christian communion today that believes that the faithful will be literally transformed after death and partake of God's divine nature. Uh, they discuss this as the doctrine of theosis, or deification. And I'm referring, of course, to the Eastern Orthodox churches, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox Church. You know, the, they have you know, hundreds of millions of members, and they're like, oh, in the United States, oh, yeah, they're there, they're there too. You know? um, now, it is somewhat different than Dan Brown's notion of apotheosis, because Dan Brown's talking about individuals becoming gods, and there is a Christian church that, that teaches that, and I think Dan Brown got his idea from him. And I'm, I'm referring to the Latter-day Saints. Dan Brown made two visits to Salt Lake City while he was writing The Lost Symbol. On one of the visits, he showed special interest in the Salt Lake Temple, and supposedly in the other visit, he was granted access to LDS church archives. Um, I think he learned about the LDS doctrine of exaltation to godhood, either when he was out in Hollywood for two years in the early 90s, because, of course, there's a great big old Mormon temple just uh, just north of Hollywood, um, or during his visits to Salt Lake while he was writing the law symbol. Heck, he might even have learned it from the writings of the Dan Brown research community. You know, many people know that Dan <laughs> Brown hit that phrase, you know, is there no help for the widow's son on the cover of the Da Vinci Code? And, of course, it's a Masonic phrase. Some of the research community was misled by their Google searches to think that this is a reference to the first Mormon prophet who used a similar phrase one time in his life. They ignored the fact that the phrase was in use in the Masonic community for a century before Joseph Smith and over a century and a half after he died. So they thought he'd, he'd write about the Mormons. Maybe that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm sure Dan Brown re reads what the Dan Brown research community puts on the Internet. So maybe he became curious. I don't know. I you don't and I wonder you take this to to Latter Day Saints and and I had some early ideas that that it was going to be tied in with that also but it hmm. it seemed to leave out any sort of inference to it in the book so so I mean oh, you yeah. can't read from the book and infer that it is um, what Actually, I found there is, though, a, there is a peculiar place where it kind of uh oh did we lose your mark uh oh did we lose him no no I'm here you got me oh they are. Yeah, now we're oh, yeah, you just faded out for a second. Yeah. Oh. Right about where you said, were you kind of, and then you faded. Maybe you got censored. Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, sorry, you Illuminati guys. We're taking over from you come New Year's. But, um, it wasn't the Illuminati this time. It was the reptilians. Oh, the reptilians. Dang, they have no sense of humor. None. No, but, uh, no, but the... Now, he, he does kind of mention, what, what it is, he does a very weird, weird thing. He slams the Latter-day Saints subtly. You know, he says that, uh, you know, the Book of Mormon translated by magic eyeglasses, which is, which is really a, kind of a slap, um, especially because he's talking about something that's right out of the Bible. And, uh, you know, the Urim and Tumim, uh, very sacred artifacts, and here's, you know, Mr. Religious Toleration saying something snarky about the Mormons. I, I think, I have to wonder if, in fact, this is, you know, some kind of psychoanalytic compensation. You know, he's got to distance himself from the Mormons because he liked the idea of exaltation. 
but didn't well, want to okay. So, so, so with this in mind, then I, I, I'm I'm wondering because I was taken and led to down hermetic path with it, the hermetic and the gnostic path, rather than the the LDS path. It, it seemed to me just to tie well more into the ideas of of hermetica, and 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 just as you said, the the the, the exaltation, but not necessarily a, as a transformation into a deity, but just sort of you know taking the as above so below idea and and you know it's it's not so much that you become a guy on the cloud with the big beard but rather that the guy on the cloud with the big beard is you and i that that it's our actions certainly in, in our life so certainly that's a that's a that's a reasonable interpretation um you know i no way to actually know without tying right. him around to a chair and having an answer <laughs> But um, exactly. that which isn't happening anytime soon. But the the you know, and that is you know, the whole hermetic and gnostic, uh, which is a very big umbrella, of course. You know, the whole hermetic and gnostic area is one that could be very very fruitful for Dan Brown as he looks for other places to put Robert Langdon. So there you go. Now one of the things that I I don't think is real um, is the whole hoo-ha about Constantino Brumidi's fresco. That's just not real. The idea that there is some kind of uh, message about apotheosis, real apotheosis, dealing with you know the rest of humanity. That's not in that fresco. There is another. A very interesting potential legitimate Masonic message that I think is uh, is tucked into the fresco, but not not the notion of apotheosis. Well, tell us a little bit about that then, because I know that that was sort of in the preliminaries of putting this together that you had a different idea. And so, what is that? If it, if it's not specifically what Brown had included, where did you okay. Um, okay. find yourself leaning on it? Well, you know the thing with this. It, 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 it just just have to point out again in the Da Vinci Code he goes on for pages on the supposed backstory of the Last Supper, okay? In Angels and Demons he goes on for pages about various artworks. With Brumidi's Apotheosis of Washington, which for those of you who haven't read the novel, it is a fresco. It, it's really there. It's immense on the dome of the U.S. Capitol building. It's magnificent, and it shows. George Washington in military attire, kind of being taken up to heaven, basically. Um, mm-hmm. And in and, the novel, and just, yeah. not to interrupt, Mark, but just for for those who who don't want to run to Google to try to to find it, we actually have it in the show post on FreemasonInformation.com. That's right. Com. That's right. Um, and and there's a little one you can click on it and just kind of get a taste of of what yeah. it looks like. So please, now, please go ahead. After the show, you should Google it because. There are arranged around that central circle six scenes that aren't visible in the smaller reproduction for the show, uh, and that winds up being crucial. But um, you know, the word apotheosis has been was used before Brumidi for centuries, just metaphorically. We read funeral. You know, sometimes the word is just used to express the hope that a deceased person had gone to a heavenly reward. So we'll read funeral orations labeled apotheosis of so-and-so. You know, 60 years before Brumidi, the French paper, Giraudet, 
displayed his painting, The Apotheosis of the French Heroes Who Died for Their Country. You know, sometimes the word was just used to express the idea that a certain concept would endure forever, or the hope that it would. So a generation after Brumidi, you had the apotheosis of democracy, designed as a huge sculpture that's put on the U.S. Capitol building today. And if you look at the fresco, and you, this is the part that you will see in the reproduction on the show page, George Washington is sitting between two allegorical goddesses, victory and liberty, you know, is someone going to tell me Bromidi thought goddesses with those names actually existed in heaven? No, I, I think his fresco was the expression that American democracy would endure. But I think there is a secret message there. Um, I mentioned that there were six scenes arranged around the central circle of Washington and the 13 maidens and all that. He sits on a rainbow. Let's say that's the 6 o'clock position. The ends of the rainbow connect scenes at 4 o'clock, and 8 o'clock, and those two scenes, and I believe only those two scenes, contain Masonic symbols. The scene at the 8 o'clock position is called Science, and who do we see there but a man showing some young people how to use a large set of compasses, just like the Masonic working tool. Now that man, whose face you don't see, is being watched by Benjamin Franklin himself who is at the very end of the rainbow. Here he is, the second most prominent Masonic founding father, connected by the rainbow to the first most prominent Masonic founding father, George Washington, who sits on the rainbow. And at the other end of the rainbow is the scene called agriculture. And there we see the Masonic symbol of the cornucopia. Now, of course, it's well known, and I'm not giving a secret away here, that the cornucopia is the symbol of the stewards of the lodge who sit in front of and to the left of the master of the lodge. And here the cornucopia is in front and to the left of Washington, who in his life had once been elected master of the lodge. I think this is just Brumidi's little love letter to Freemasonry. He had been thrown out of Italy for supporting the revolutionary cause back in the 1840s. And, of course, the struggle for the Risorgimento of Italy was led by the famous Italian Freemasons, Mazzini and Garibaldi. I have no proof that Brumidi was a Freemason. You will see that claim made in print. I've never seen a shred of proof on that. I, since I'm now in New York, where he lived for a while and overlapped some time with Garibaldi, I'm going to try to f dig up some evidence on this issue one way or the other. But I find it suggestive that he incorporates what seems to be Masonic symbols in his fresco. And if there's a message here, it's that Freemasonry would help American democracy survive and thrive in the future, to all of which I say, so mote it be. That's a, I, I would agree with you. <laughs> and, the, and the final thought there, I, I think that's a, that's a, that's a, I don't even know really how to sink my teeth into to the depth of what you've suggested. And, and especially in the sense that if that were the case, then how would Brown have missed that to begin with? I think that I'm Dan kidding. Brown got the notion of apotheosis somewhere else where he did not wish to indicate where he got it from. And in order to introduce the topic, he pulls in Brumidi's fresco, you know, by the, you know, he pulls in Brumidi by the scruff of his neck shows the apotheosis of Washington just to introduce the concept of apotheosis and then throws Brumidi back out into the hallway. 
Um, and that, uh, it, it, that's what I'm saying. It's very suspicious. Uh, he, I mean, I'm not the first one to notice that Masonic compasses are in the science scene. I think I might be the first one to notice that the cornucopia is in the agriculture scene and they're connected by the rainbow and that's all very nice and suggestive. Uh, but in any case, it, it, it would have been easy as pie for him to mention the compasses, which, you know, my gosh, this has been on the Scottish Rite website for, you know, five years. So, the uh, you know, Arturo de Hoyos, who is a terrific guy, a great scholar, wrote up something in response to the National Treasure movies in which he happened to just let slip that the Masonic compasses could be seen in the science scene of the apotheosis of Washington. That's in the, you know, the Scottish Rite Journal, I think, back in 2005 or something like that, maybe four, and, um, you know, which is where I learned it from. So this is, this is nothing that would be difficult for him to find, and the fact that he doesn't mention it suggests to me he doesn't know it, and that's because that really wasn't so important to him. He just wanted to introduce the word apotheosis and then move on. Why he would want to not mention where the idea of apotheosis comes from is an interesting question, isn't it? it? Yeah? It, 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 absolutely, it is. And, and, and I wonder, and, and I, my mind slides around a little bit to, to a few different places, um, especially with, with the idea of apotheosis and, and going back since itself was so uh, leaned so much in Scottish Rite Freemasonry. I mean, just poking around right now in, in Morals and Dogma, I mean, the, the amount of times that apotheosis comes up, you oh, know, sure. especially in, in, in the in the the, the one uh, reference that that so many so often uh, attribute, you know, Satan worship to Freemasonry um, in their misreading of it, you know, and in, in, I can give you the page, page three twenty one. <laughs> And uh, and and just the the volume that it's included in there, you know, and, and to to miss the inclusion of of the squares and compasses, I, I wonder if it's really a miss or, or if it's like in the in the the pictures by Durer, you know, the Melancholia one, where where you have the angel with you know the the tracing board and perhaps um, and the squares and compasses and all these geometric things around it, you know, is it is it really so much missing it or not including it because it's not necessary? That, that it would be maybe but redundant know, to mention them? Is, I don't know. But you see, the thing is, though, I, I, uh, you know, I can't say this without appearing to be critical of Dan Brown, and um, and I, I certainly don't mean to put ah, Be critical. Up. He's not here. No. <laughs> oh, okay then. The heck with you, Dan. No. Here's, here's, the thing. here's the thing with that. It's very uncharacteristic of him to not give you the pieces that tie these things together in some kind of quasi-conspiratorial thing. I was shocked to see the relatively poor use that he made of Melancholia One. I really was, because that, that masterpiece of Duray, for those of you who aren't familiar with the artwork, you know, in fact, I was surprised they didn't put a reproduction of the artwork in the, in the book. This is an engraving by That's Albert for the illustrated version. Uh, that's uh, that's right, that's right, and, and that'll, that, that's inevitable if that'll come out. Um, this was done by Albrecht Dure, the master of the German Renaissance, and it shows uh, a big angel playing around with what appear to be, you know, Masonic compasses. Well, not you know, Masonic compasses. You see in the back uh, a ladder, which of course could be the uh, you know the ladder of Kadosh. 
uh, in the Scottish Rite. There are a number. There's an hourglass there. That's and there's a the uh, the geometric solid that you see there has some Masonic significance. And you will see in, in a good reproduction, you see that there are shadows in the shape of a skull. There are all kinds of, of of items that it's really not much of a stretch to see as Masonic symbols. And yet he makes no use of it at all. All that he does is he uses the magic square as if that were, you know, all that. And, and, and he uses it well to decode something, and that's a perfectly good use of it. But given that this whole novel is purportedly placed in the world of Freemasonry, he doesn't seem to make as much use of this as of all things he could have. So, And that's that's just peculiar. For some reason, he's stepping away from making those links, and I think it's a mistake. And and maybe it goes back to what you mentioned, just instead of the book being you know as big as it is, you know, it could have been a, a, a thousand-page book. You know, he could have rewritten Lord of the Rings with everything that he put into it. You know, it ended oh. up with an eight, nine-hundred-page book. Um, but, but it goes to what it have... have would it have been lent better? itself any more to the story? Right, exactly. I mean, I I, so. it, maybe it would have, but as subtext, I think it's still a thriller. Again, you know, just like reading Ian Fleming, you're not reading for the nuance of British reading it to find read about a spy who drives really nice cars, kisses beautiful uh-huh. women, and shoots really cool guns. You, you know what I mean? So, so really, is the point of the book Freemasonry, or is the point of the book Robert Langdon's interaction with it? But you see that, which you know. That's I, I I must I must beg to differ on this point, and, and that's I'll tell you why. Dan Brown's Langdon novels have always had the subtext that they were about religion release 2.0. They've always involved each one has involved at least one and often two ideas about what's in in Dan Brown's mind a better version of religion would look like, and. Uh, you know, in Angels and Demons, the whole issue is the relationship of science and religion, and a good religion, a better religion, would embrace science. In The Da Vinci Code, as far as Dan Brown is concerned, a better religion would embrace the divine feminine and would humanize the image of Jesus. And with the lost symbol, very clearly, he's pushing religious toleration, and his public statement subsequent to the publication suggest that that was a big issue for him the issue of religious toleration he's he's gone on the record saying something like you know in a world where people kill each other every day over whose idea of religion is more accurate the masons have found a way to make peace with men among men of different religious backgrounds and so he he's definitely trying to push uh, an intellectual agenda here again i see it as a novel of ideas as i um an awful of ideas masquerading as a thriller. And Ian Fleming, you know, arguably never really did that. You know, you mentioned rewriting Tolkien. You mentioned rewriting Tolkien. I'm thinking of the last Harry Potter novel, okay, <laughs> which was, came in, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows came in at, I'm holding it now, 754 pages, 50% longer than uh, than the lost symbol, and it doesn't appear to have hurt sales any. You know, I'm even looking at uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, a novel, big novel, big fantasy novel, a couple of years ago, 765 pages, uh, and it, it sold 
hot, like hotcakes amongst you know the the fantasy reading community. Um, I'm thinking, I'm thinking he might have cut this a little too close to the bone. If that's what if that's what happened here, I mean, you know, the the one of the big the big unanswered question is why did he take six years to do this? And <laughs> I, well, know, we touched I, on that a little bit earlier, just in the sense of having to rewrite and come up with the with maybe, the clear story. Right? Maybe it could be that. I mean, yeah. joke every time certain would, movies came out. <laughs> Well, every, yeah, well, but I think you're onto something. I think you could have went longer and 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 filled it out a bit more and yeah. and covered up some of the gaps for the because again, he's writing. Uh, you say he's leaving some, as you say, he's leaving some gaps in there. Yeah. And people people need to be bridged. Uh, you know, speak to the lowest common denominator, I guess, to some extent. Well, even, but, uh, even that, I would have enjoyed reading his take on the Masonic symbolism in Melancholia One. I would have enjoyed his take on, if he really had a backstory, what the heck is Constantino Brumidi doing embedding secret messages? And even if he was making up the history, you know, on the one hand, I was irritated with the way that he made up the history of the Illuminati. You know, 200 years different from the reality, 600 miles, a nation, a language, social classes, an agenda, all being different. But it worked. It all worked, and I was, and I, uh, although I was irritated historically, I had a fun time reading it, and and reading his his notion, his re, his reboot of the Illuminati. So I hope he brings them back. I ho- you know I hope we see them again. Uh, we've never really seen them. They were a uh, spoiler alert here, but they were a red herring in uh, in Angels and Demons. I'd love to see the real live Illuminati. Go for it, man. So, uh, but anyway, that. Oh, we did have we had a whole show on the Illuminati, pretty much, didn't we, with uh, Chris there a few months ago? Yes, the real Illuminati, real, and he did a great job of that. But I'm saying Dan Brown could do take his alternative reality version of the Illuminati and work it into into a great book. You know, I'd I'd love to read that book. If he doesn't write it, I will, and then he'll be sorry. But, uh, you know, that that gets to the whole issue of, you know, where is he going to go from here? And I have some thoughts on that, if you're interested. If you, if yeah, you, we are. Fire away. I, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Dan Brown has said publicly that he's fascinated with Kabbalah. And, um, you know, the Kabbalah gives him a lot of room to maneuver. It has fabulous coding schemes and of course you know you know it's not a dan brown novel if you're not reading codes uh the visual iconography in kabbalah is also also fascinating gives him a lot of room to maneuver all right all right i'll hold you i'm going to guess i'm going to make a guess what robert langton is going to marry madonna Oh, Lord. He's going to be the next husband of Madonna. Do you remember what I said a little while ago about oh, no. while watching television? Okay, don't do that kind of thing again. Robert Langdon marrying Madonna is not. No, oh, ugh, I have to go shower. Uh, another yeah, thing it's not go, the cards. Oh, I've already I've already mentioned that the Illuminati, you know, you know, showing them as they are now. He gives the dark hint in uh, Angels and Demons that they've changed in some fashion from the 16th century. So let's see what they become. Um, he could go, he could write a Rosicrucian novel. 
you know, we're coming up on the 400th anniversary of the Rosicrucian Manifestos in 2014. The Rosa, you know, the different phases of the Rosicrucian movement generated an immense amount of symbolism. Uh, and, of course, that helps Robert Langdon no end. Um, so that's a possibility. Uh, I actually have a Rosicrucian project in the works, and I can tell you about later if you like. Tibetan Buddhism. Robert Langdon hasn't done anything in Asia yet. Tibetan Buddhism has an astonishingly rich visual culture and symbology. There are traditions about hidden wisdom treasures meant to come forth in certain ages of time. There's the opportunity for conspiracies. You know, we have myths about Shambhala or Shangri-La, the way that's been vulgarized in English. The Nazis actually attempted to discover Shambhala. You know, there, there's all kinds of opportunity for room to maneuver for Robert Langdon here. And then Christian Gnosticism. We're talking about religious repression back to the fourth, yeah, yeah the fourth century, real life hidden documents, teachings involving apotheosis, as you point out, real conspiracies in ancient and modern times. It's a field day for Robert Langdon and therefore for Dan Brown. So. Those are those are five ideas. Um, not that he's looking not for him, because he I'm sure he has his own stuff down. But those would be five, my five guesses for where he could send him next time round. Uh, I, I I just I, not that I'm in the know at all. I mean, you know, I, I read the same things everybody else reads, but I, I have an idea of where he's going to go with it um, in the sense of of staying in, in the West and not so much going East. And, and I tend to think that he's going to go to the Rosicrucians on it. It just seems to be a good fit, and, and it's a, it seems to be a natural step, especially from Freemasonry. It would, be. To... It, would be, it would be a natural step. He could actually use this as an opportunity to tie some themes together. I mean, what about a Rosicrucian Illuminati shootout, so to speak? You know, flat down, <laughs> smack down. That's what I'm looking for. An Illuminati Rosicrucian Celebrity deathmatch, um, just what I'm looking for. So, and you know, you do have the historical anniversary coming up. And one nice thing about setting Landon finally in the United States is that we have a lot of stuff here. We have manuscripts. We have that. There's not. There were a few things you still have to go to Europe for. Um, and there are some things even with Rosicrucianism that, that aren't available in this country. But a lot of stuff, you know, is translated in manuscript, tucked away in private collections or libraries. So he could he could do it in New York. Um, and and Dan, if you need somebody to show you around a bit, I'd be delighted. <laughs> I, so, no, I live like that. I live a five minute walk from his publishers, and. Um, and uh, and in fact, in fact, my wife, uh, the night before the book was published, she was coming back. My wife is a is a graduate student at Fordham. She was coming back from the library and saw Dan Brown and his family get out of a cab and go into a hotel. Um, she did, in fact, exercise remarkable restraint and didn't go up and say, you know, my husband's working on a book on you, and if we could have that book just a little bit early, she didn't do that. But um, but there you go. You know, come on down, Dan. I'll show you around. Uh, yeah, okay, that's the that's the unfortunate and unhealthy part of my personality, uh, the magical <laughs> thinking part showing itself. But uh, nothing I can Yeah, Dan, to. ignore that last five minutes of the interview. It didn't really happen. Nah, it didn't really happen. So. <laughs> what else can I? What else would you like me to address, guys? 
Well, is there any other last-minute... Oh, go ahead, Greg. No, no, go ahead. You, you were taking the words right out of my mouth. Please. I was, yeah, I, I was looking for any last-minute secret symbols or something that you can unveil that, that would blow us away, you know? Uh, okay. Uh, be some, okay. Yeah, yeah, I can, or, actually. Or actually, actually, Mark, before you go there, or just to throw out to the listening audience, we have oh, yeah. roughly 30 people that are in our chat and an oh unknown number who are actually out there listening live. If anybody has a question that they want to call in about the loss of the Mark's upcoming books or, or past books, um, give us a call. The number to call in is 347-677-0936. Again, 347-677-0936. So, uh, so take it away, Mark. Uh, you, you were just about to answer that question. Okay. In terms of, let's see, secrets to blow your minds away. Uh, I've talked about the tattoos. I've talked about the actual ancient Christian doctrine of, uh, of apotheosis. I've talked about the actual Masonic message in the apotheosis of Washington, and I've talked about the whole Mormon connection thing. Um, hmm. You know, I I don't know. And see, there are a couple of other things I'm actually fiddling with. I don't know that I'd care to to bring up. What I am finding is that there's stuff all over. Some of it are mysteries about the book and how it was put together. Uh, some of it are are just mysteries of... All right, in the book, I'm going to be talking about ritual magic, alchemy. I'll be talking about noetic... Oh, here's a secret. Here's something. Uh, this is, I hope this doesn't get me killed. Um, no, <laughs> no this, this really could, actually. But what the heck? If I tell everybody, they can't get me. Noetic science, real thing. And in his discussion of noetic science, he talks about remote viewing. Uh, the, some of you will know that remote viewing was an actual, uh, very secret project of uh, Army intelligence. I happened to stumble into it by accident 20 years ago. Not, not into the program, but into their actual physical facilities. I, I'll mention this in the book. I, here I am in this you know, kind of crappy... Uh, you know, hut, basically, or set of huts put together. And uh, I was told, you know, stand right here. I'm just going to go get something from my desk, and there we go. Um, won't tell you who I was with at this point. But I'm looking around me. There are all these maps with the Middle East, and I figure, okay, no big surprises there. But what do I see on the desks? Copies of uh, the Journal of the American Psychic Research Association, journals about dowsing. You know, all this stuff about parapsychology. Uh, I couldn't ask any questions, didn't find out about what it was about until years later when the, when the whole thing broke down and people started writing about it. And then the person in whose company I was actually uh, has, is now publicly known to have been involved in, in the remote viewing program. So I'll be talking about that and the reality behind uh, noetic science, and I will be talking about the actual aims of magic, which have an awful lot to do with apotheosis. Some ways good, some ways not. So uh, there will be some members of the magical community who will applaud what I have to say. There will be others, I'm sure, who will give me reason to practice magical defense. <laughs> oh, now, now, just to hear yeah, Dean's favorite subject is magic. Don't go there, Mark. Oh, I, um, I, I've got. I, I spent five minutes in the last interview trying to figure out what what the guy meant by magic, and he he was insulted that I would even ask the question. You know, but the the question, what was magic? 
And I had to answer it for Dean. I had to explain it to him. You know, I I have I I I was not able again because I've been on internet interdiction. I was not able to listen to that broadcast with Lon Milo Ducat. I I do plan on on listening to that. I'm surprised that he would give that kind of reaction, but that's the first thing you have to deal with. What is it? How does it work? And most especially importantly, why would one use it? There are different answers to those questions. And well, I- well, if if you're a guy like me, okay, you got two versions of magic in your head. You got you got magic that that uh, that, that the guy does on stage, you know. Right. Stage. Makes it makes it makes 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 uh, the the Statue of Liberty disappear. Right. And you have magic that, like they right. talk about in Harry Potter, you know. Yeah. Right. Ah, but you see, that's Harry Potter is a really a horrible distortion of real magic. Uh, one of the things I'm going to be mentioning in the book, there actually is a it's a lovely book by a mason uh, called Learning Ritual Magic, uh, or he's one of the three authors. John Michael Greer uh, is a mason. Write that name down, Greg. We've got to get that guy on now. You really do want him on. You really want him on. He's one of the best currently writing magical authors he is he wrote he actually wrote a fabulous book called The Magical Lodge where he talked about how freemasonry um provided the background the the organizational structure for people who were forming magical organizations back in the 19th century and the early 20th century um now I'll be talking about that in my book but he'd be a great guest for you to have he lives in if you Google him, it'll, oh, wait a minute, I've got a book of his sitting around here someplace. He lives in Oregon now. He had been in Washington. If you have trouble getting through to him, I have some connections that can put me through to, uh, can put me through to where he is. Oh, okay, well, we won't worry about that right now. We'll, I'll, I'll talk yeah. to you later yeah, he's in, he, lives but, in uh, Southern, he lives in Southern Oregon these days, so... Okay. So, so for those that are trying to figure out what we're talking about, what you stumbling in, they should watch that movie. What is it? Watching goats, and and, and it wasn't oh, a Masonic theme movie either. We weren't talking about masonry. Watching goats either, like no. like you know, we make our uh, inner no. apprentices both, do, right? Both the book and the movie <laughs> purport to show some of the things about uh, remote viewing. I got to tell you, I found them so offensive. I had, especially because I knew the reality behind it that I had to wonder if there wasn't a... I mean, the the conspiratorial side of me had to wonder, is this just put out as deliberate disinformation? If you really want to read about remote viewing, uh, there's a fine man named Paul Smith who has uh, a book called Reading the Enemy's Mind. Run out and get it. It's in paperback. He's he's a nice guy, um, not a mason, honorable man, former army ranger. So uh, yeah, I would I would look at that to find out what the reality was to the uh, the remote viewing program. I, any, probably most who who are listening to the program have had some background in listening to the old Art Bell show and, and probably oh, yeah. have some kind of some kind of memory of of the ideas of was it Major Ed Dames and the remote viewing of uh of of yesteryear when art was still in the air. Um, but you know, in, in, in tying that idea, especially the idea of noetic sciences back to the book, yeah. I, I know that a lot of weight in the media has been pushed in the sense that that was part of the underlying message that Brown was pushing. But I almost want to say that it was really more of a, a plot device for Brown to sort of help 
push his apotheosis idea. Well, you know what, what I mean? What so it, it was less about noetic sciences and more just about, see, look, we're doing it now. Ta-da! Okay, you, you see, the thing with that, the thing with, again, again, the, the story of this novel is, a story, is, to some extent, the story about themes that were not sufficiently developed. I think uh, Brown found himself in an interesting quandary. He has several pathways of human transformation, and for one reason or another, none of them uh, was going to work for him as an actual pathway to godhood. The only one that he, I mean, he, he, wasn't, he, he couldn't get into the ancient mysteries, because that would have been a completely different book. And that, incidentally, is another place he might go if he could find a, uh, a good way to, to make that work. The problem, of course, being that what, what were the ancient mysteries? Not to be funny, but it's a mystery. We don't know. Um, there, he couldn't use ritual magic because he had Malak using that, and that all worked out badly, very, very badly, spectacularly badly in the end. Um, he couldn't use Freemasonry because Freemasonry doesn't, make you into a god. It makes you into a very, very good man. But it doesn't make you into a god. But noetic science, from one point of view, I don't happen to agree with that point of view, but from one point of view, does develop godlike capacities, or has that potential in seed, in embryo. I think he really meant that. I think he just didn't, didn't develop it sufficiently. And I will have a chapter, incidentally. And I have, a, I have like a in manuscript, it's like a 70-page-long chapter on apotheosis, and I will have other somewhat, somewhat shorter chapters on each of the pathways, uh, the ancient mysteries, ritual magic, uh, Freemasonry will be a longer chapter, and also noetic science. Um, I should probably tell you how to tell me that you'd like me to tell you about the book, uh, how to get it. The, um, yeah, by all means. <laughs> yeah, the the way to get it, you know, when when I when I finally get a home for it at a, at a publishing house, and when I finally get that date, uh, I'll send emails out to anybody who sends me an email first at discovering the lost symbol at yahoo.com. Okay, discovering the lost symbol at yahoo.com. Um, if people are interested in my Masonic blogs and all that, because uh, I do have blogs on Dan Brown, I have blogs on Freemasonry, I have uh, blogs on the Latter-day Saints, the best, the easiest way to get that are the links off of my Google profile page. How do you get to the Google profile page? The easiest thing is just Google my name, and it shows up in the first six to ten links. Uh, but if someone out there obsessively wants to write down a URL, it's www.google.com slash profiles, slash Mark Coltco Rivera. All is one long word, no hyphen. Um, yeah. Hey, I can tell you what it is I've got coming up after this book is done. I have a, Please. Uh, I have several Masonic projects. Uh, several you're, you're a very busy man. <laughs> I'm, I'm in awe at the busyness that I'm, I'm feeling radiating from you. You know, the thing is, I, I mentioned a little while ago that I'm a bit older than you guys. Um... I got a I got a text from my son just before the show uh saying that you know good luck on the podcast. I've got a son old enough to be in college. So I turned 50 a few years ago and you turn 50 and you you got a choice. You either get into the 
kind of the relaxation kickback mode or you get into the, you know, I'm, I haven't done what I'm going to do yet and I'm going to go out and do it, dang it. So I've taken that latter road. So I have, uh, you know, once discovering the law symbol is safely placed with a publisher, I'll be working on several new projects um, that have some connection to Freemasonry. First of all, I'll be issuing a second edition of my book, Freemasonry, an introduction. Uh, people who are interested in getting this, contact me through my Google profile page, and I'll, I'll let you know when it's out. You know, readers of my blog for Freemasons, you know, Freemasonry, reality, myth, and legend. I just love saying it like that. Um, <laughs> they know that I'm still in the middle of a long series about the Roman Catholic Church and Freemasonry. You know, both the traditional and the more recent Catholic critiques of Masonry are based on a deeply flawed understanding of Freemasonry. Uh, and I'd like to set the record straight. It's certainly not about attacking the church. It's about having people understand that Masonry, you know, it, understanding it as it actually exists, uh, that it's very different from the organization that the church is critiquing. So I'll be putting together a book on that. Uh, I'd love to do a show on that, incidentally, guys. That'll, that'll get some calls. Um, <laughs> Sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I'd also like to address the relationship of the Masonic rituals to the LDS temple rituals at book length. Uh, this has been an area of dispute for a century and a half. I think I have some insights that might help transform this discussion from heat to light. Uh, I've already mentioned the 400th anniversary of the Rosicrucian Manifestos comes up in 2014. I hope to write a lovely big book for the general public on the Rosicrucian movement, there's so much that can be said here, not just about the history, but about the meaning of the movement, not just then, but for our day. And I also plan to write a modern Rosicrucian novel. This is a genre that's long been neglected. It used to have attention by major writers. Edward Bulwer-Lytton wrote a Rosicrucian novel. Percy Bliss Shelley wrote two. Uh, and I think it's time to revise the genre. And finally... Hey, when, you say, when you say novel, is uh, in a fictional novel? Is there another kind? Well, well you did write another book, Mark. Oh, but that was fiction. Those are fictional. St <laughs> those those stories are fiction. Now they happen to be embedded within. This is the sneaky thing. They're embedded within a cryptography book. But that's not every bit fiction. No, this would be this would be fiction already. Um, Mark, I pull your name up on Amazon. I see you wrote one other book that you never mentioned. You haven't mentioned. Uh, some of the stuff on well, I, I certainly wrote a lot when I was was teaching psychology. What have you got there? The sleep, uh, uh, interpreting dreams, right? So, uh, actually, that book was on the psychology of sleep and dreams. A part of it was about interpreting. Yes, um, I thought pretty dang good too. But oh well. So I just had a dream of of Greg, but he kind of had the donkey's body and 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 his and, a, and his real head. Is that well, how should I interpret that? I want you to get help. <laughs> I want you to get a lot of help, and I want you to get it very soon. Swear to me. Swear to me, you'll get help. Uh, uh, it, well, you know, the scary, the scary part of that is that Dean and I are two sides of the same coin. So, I mean, really, was it a dream about me or a dream about him? Oh, give me a break. I would like you both <laughs> to get a great deal of help. Keep in mind, I practiced as a psychotherapist for 16 years. So if I'm telling you you need help, no, just joking, guys, just joking. To actually do dream interpretation, 
you know, we would need to sit down for an hour or two and, and, and investigate the meanings of these symbols to you, okay, and where you are in your life and, and that kind of thing. So, so I'm that not, sounds like I'm, a, whole, a whole program unto itself and, and actually something we could, uh, might want to explore at some point. Oh, interesting thought. How how you bring in a Masonic angle on that? I don't know how how to handle that one, but well, we could take it out of the Masonic angle and just uh, do it for what it is. Anyway, not to oh. deviate. Okay. So, finally, last Masonic project. I'd like to write something of a higher level introduction to Freemasonry, something that emphasizes the intellectual, the philosophical, even the esoteric end of Masonry for the general reader, without going off the deep end. So you can think of this as either the Philosopher's Guide to Freemasonry or Freemasonry for Esotericists. By the time I do these, Dan Brown should finish his next novel, and then I'll have that to write about. Um, Chris Hodap wrote a question he wants you to answer, and that is, why do I keep dreaming that I can't return a rental car? Why do I keep dreaming I can't return a rental car? Yeah. i I got to tell you, Chris, I got to tell you, I find it interesting that you have this dream in the context of you doing a great deal of traveling in real life. So I think that your real life may be intruding a bit here. Beyond that, um, I have to wonder, you know, you also, like me, are a man of many projects. And with all those projects, certainly the disease I have to be aware of is not finishing them. Um, so, you know, that's, I, I know I, when I, I, if I were to point the finger there, I, I would point out I have four fingers pointing, or at least three fingers pointing back at me, but, uh, <laughs> maybe this is my own stuff coming up, okay, which is always the danger in dream interpretation. So, I hope, so, hope you're doing well. Chris, Mark, we're going to just wrap this, we're going to wrap this up because the, the live show is going to end in a couple, a few seconds, so, uh, Greg? Greg, do we yeah, Mark, thank you very much. Yeah, Mark, thanks for coming on the program. We we don't have a guest next week, but stay tuned. We, we always have something great coming up, and uh, and we'll have more for for everybody next week. Mark, thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Love to, the topic, love the conversation, and uh, I'm sure everybody listening does too. It's been and, um, fun. Obviously, we'll we'll have you back to to talk about all this stuff again. I know we're running Please way do. out of time. So, this is Brother Greg saying, travel light and. This is Brother Dean Kennedy saying, see you in the East. Hey, take care, guys, and uh, it's a great day to be a Mason. Thanks, Mark. Now, now, Mark, we're, we, we are now on, like, an, uh, the live show just ended. Now uh, download content starts, so we, uh, but uh, it was great having you on the show. My I just pleasure. wanted to wrap that up while we were doing the live show. Um, and for those downloading, they can still hear what we're saying, but... Uh, but, uh, yeah, we'd love to have you back on again uh, well, at some point. Uh, with you You're got, always interesting. You got, a, you got at least two explosive topics that you could bring me in on, and, and a few more if you want. I'd be delighted to talk about, again, the Roman Catholic Church and Freemasonry. Um, if you've been following my blog at all, you know that the way that I address it is respectful, but very detailed. And um, I'd love to address the whole... Mormon Mason thing in a, in a comprehensive way. And, hey, you know, I'll be glad to talk about... Uh, yeah, th- those are those are two that... Yeah, the LDS uh, issue is, I think, is opening up more and more for those people who aren't aware of it. Um, the 
You still there? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, wow, everything just closed up on the... Okay. Um, yeah, for those who aren't aware, it it is very uh, intertwined, I think, and uh, not just think, I pretty much know that it's heavily intertwined, masonry and, and the, the the roots of, of, of the Latter-day Saints, I'd, right? I'd actually take issue with that. The... Uh... But again, that's the subject for a show. That's a subject. Yeah, for a show. and 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 definitely one I think that we should look at doing and, and pulling together mm-hmm. for for something. Do you know I who, hate to get too far into it right now? But oh yeah, and this is this is available for people downloading. But I'd also like to go and I have a few people that I know who are who are uh, who are involved with the Mormon Church, um, and I think they would be very happy to come on. One being uh, Reed. Um, he'd, I think he'd like to come on that show, maybe have like a bit of a panel discussion about it. That would be great. I, so, I know, uh, for example, that the former Grand Master of Utah... Um, Brother you, Cook? Uh, I'm sorry? Yes, Brother G, Brother Cook. He'd, he takes a different position than I do. He disagrees with me. So you'd get some, uh, you'd get some, interesting, you'd get some interesting discussion. Hopefully no erasures. So, uh, so there you go. Um, I'd be delighted to take question, call-in stuff if anybody, you know, I don't mind staying on for a while. Well, or is that um, possible at this point? I think the, the 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 live listening audience is is pretty much evaporated. The way the new system works is that at the at the end of the call, it still stays on podcast, but the live recording it, uh-huh. it goes away. Um, if Dean's open for a post show, I don't know if Dean, you're down for a post show or not. You were. You you can do one, Greg. I'm suffering from uh, from sleep deprivation. Very sorry to hear that. Yeah, yeah. No, and I, actually, I've got to hop off too for, for okay. stuff that I've got going on here. Then so. don't worry about but any we'll, of that stuff. I will mention. Yeah, my, we'll, I will mention my wife has a suggestion for you as a promotional item, as a Christmas gift for the Lady Masons, a gold bar. Based on the idea that if we actually run the world, as as she put it to me, if you guys run the world, where's my gold bar? And um, just a thought, a little 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 cult goers out of humor here. <laughs> Enjoy, guys. Enjoy, guys. She has hands in the air. Where's my gold bar? All right, peace <laughs> out, guys. It's been fun. You guys are funny. Oh yeah, thanks, thanks a lot. Take care. Hey, love you. We'll talk to you guys. Bye bye. Bye. <laughs>